Tonight, embattled New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez pleads not guilty to federal bribery charges. Amid a growing chorus of Democrats calling on him to resign, a Metrofocus special report from New Jersey with NJ Spotlight News' Brianna Vanozzi. Then we continue our week-long series focusing on student mental health issues with a teenager's race for hope. Meet the local high school student who's raising awareness about teen depression one mile at a time. Better Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Last Friday, for the second time in his career, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was indicted on federal corruption charges. Federal prosecutors accused Senator Menendez, his wife, and three others of conspiracy to commit bribery. Prosecutors say Menendez used his influential position in Washington to obtain hundreds of thousands of dollars in lavish gifts, gold and cash in exchange for aiding the government of Egypt and for his efforts to disrupt federal and state prosecutions on behalf of two New Jersey associates. In light of the charges, a growing number of Democrats in New Jersey and Washington has been calling on the senator to resign. Monday, Menendez described the charges against him and his wife as baseless and denied any wrongdoing. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. On Wednesday, Senator Menendez and his wife were arraigned at a federal courthouse in Manhattan where they both pleaded not guilty. And joining us now with more on the charges and the potential political fallout, both in New Jersey and on Capitol Hill, is the anchor of NJ Spotlight News on NJPBS, Brianna Venosi. Brianna, thank you for joining us. Ralph, it's great to be with you. So Brianna, first of all, I wonder if you could elaborate on the federal uh, charges against Senator Menendez. What exactly are they alleging that he did? This was really an astonishing indictment, 39 pages written for the public to read and digest. The allegations are uh, pretty brazen. They range from uh, Senator Menendez and his wife, Nadine, working with three businessmen in New Jersey. One of those, his name is Whale Hanna. He has ties to the Egyptian government. The indictment lays out how Menendez, through his wife uh, and Whale Hanna, set up meetings in which they discussed a number of interests of the Egyptian government, ranging from U.S. aid to weapons and uh, military aid 
to be signed off on by the senator using his very high-ranking position as the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, to help in those interests. In exchange, according to prosecutors, Will Hanna and other associates padded the pockets of Senator Menendez and his wife. Uh, in the indictment, we saw photos of envelopes stuffed with cash, $100 bills, $20 bills, adding up to about half a million dollars inside the jacket pockets of Senator Menendez's coats, bearing his name, bearing the symbol of the Hispanic caucus in the Senate, uh, a safety deposit box of Nadine Arslanian Menendez, his wife, carrying about $70,000 of cash. What's notable there were that the envelopes and cash had fingerprints of these associates. Uh, gold bullion bars uh, with serial numbers also linked to these associates. There was a level of concealment, prosecutors allege, because these items were hidden throughout their Englewood's, uh, Englewood Cliffs home and discovered in June 2022 when they executed a search warrant. Uh, in addition, there were ties to a luxury car, a 2019 convertible Mercedes-Benz, in which it's alleged that these associates set up uh, payments, handed off cash to help pay for that car. I mean, it goes on, Raf, to exercise equipment and an air purifier uh, during the height of the pandemic. Uh, so it's uh, pretty extensive, and it was a real bombshell here, uh, the ties that they were able to make uh, with text messages, deleted emails, uh, a number of uh, communication methods. Yeah, you know, regarding that cash that was found in his home and those envelopes inside the pockets of his jackets, uh, on, on Monday uh, on a press event, uh, Senator Menendez um, said that there was a very innocent um, explanation for that. We have a clip of that. Let's take a look at what he said. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. So, Brianna, what do you make of that explanation? Uh, do you think that most New Jerseyans are going to find it convincing? Well, <laughs> that's not that's not for me to decide. But listen, Menendez has sharp elbows. This is a man who has spent pretty much his entire life since he was 20 years old holding an elected office. He came up through the ranks in Hudson County, which we all know here in New Jersey is as rough and tumble as you can get going up against party bosses and the Democratic machine. And this is also not his first rodeo. He has stood trial before, which ended in uh, early 2018 after a nine-week uh, uh, jury trial in a hung jury. So he's been here before. He is shrewd. He is uh, known to be extremely intelligent, uh, politically savvy. Uh, and yeah. so he humbly asked, if you'll remember from that press conference, he humbly asked the public to let the facts uh, play out, yeah. to yeah. allow the justice system the to do what they do. Yeah. Has he made a, has he tried to explain, you, you mentioned it, um, he says, as we just saw, that the money 
that he brought that money from the bank to his house. Um, does he has he tried to explain how the fingerprints of the alleged bribers got on those envelopes that he brought from the bank? That was noticeably missing uh, from his uh, pretty lengthy statement that he made. Uh, it wasn't really a, a press event. He didn't take any questions. Uh, he you know, laid out what he sees as the case from his perspective. But no, he did not address the fingerprints. He also did not address the gold bars. Uh, you know, as we heard there, he sort of tied this to his Cuban roots, uh, to government overreach keeping that amount of money uh, on hand for emergencies. But as prosecutors have duly noted, he makes $174,000 a year with his position in the Senate. So to withdraw that money over 30 years, you know, they're going to he in his defense is going to have to show the receipts uh, for those transactions. Yeah. yeah, I have to say I'm a Cuban, as you know, and uh, I don't remember ever hearing that that was a tradition that you put money in the in your house hundreds of thousands new to me well but as as you mentioned senator menendez um has been through this before in 2015 um he was indicted for corruption as well i won't go into the details but as a, a doctor friend of his um the allegations what that he got very lucrative uh, gifts and favors in exchange for a number of things including uh, getting visas for that doctor's uh, foreign girlfriends into the United States. As you said, that was a, uh, the jury was hung on that trial, um, after which the judge acquitted him of some of the charges, and then the prosecutors dropped all the rest. First of all, there, there are no connections between any of that and the current charges, correct? I mean, there's no clear connection. It alleges that all of these acts started up really a month after that mistrial. So, uh, the indictment came down in 2015. The trial didn't happen until two years later in 2017. And prosecutors allege that Senator Menendez and his wife conspired to commit these schemes really a, a month after that jury was hung. And so to that effect, it seems as though the investigations never really stopped. Um, and we heard from the Southern, the U.S. attorney from the Southern District the investigation is very much ongoing. So what we are looking to see, of course, is how much uh, Menendez knew about the dealings with the Egyptian officials, how much exactly of a role his wife played. But a lot of the accusations do ring similar. I mean, taking lavish yeah. gifts from a rich friend. Yeah. The difference here is there are a lot more direct lines being drawn. And as one prosecutor told me this week, the effort to conceal it uh, is really damning. Yeah. Well, another big difference is that um, after Senator Menendez's 2015 uh, indictment, most of his fellow Democrats, both in Washington and in New Jersey, stood by him and strongly supported him. This time, most of those Democrats have already called for him to resign. Why the difference? Yeah, and pretty quickly, too. I mean, Friday at 5 yeah. o'clock, Governor Phil Murphy put out a statement. And then after that, it was just a deluge of statements from top-ranking Democratic officials here. There's two big differences, really. One is the charges in 2015 were a lot harder to prove. Uh, they were much less salacious. And the second big difference is the fact that we had a Republican governor then, Governor Chris Christie, who, yeah. if Menendez resigned, would have been able to appoint a Republican 
to replace him in the Senate. We now have a Democratic governor who could appoint a Democrat to replace him. And you know as well as I do, Senate Democrats are trying like hell to hold on to their razor thin majority. Uh, so this is a seat that should be safe. Democrats really don't want to pour millions of dollars into a race should Menendez hold on to his seat and uh, survive a primary. Well, one of the biggest supporters that Menendez had in 2015 after, the, after that indictment was Senator Booker. Uh, Senator Booker finally on Tuesday came out himself and called for his resignation. What specific reason did Senator Booker give for his change of attitude? Well, you know, it, I don't know that it was a change of attitude. He was silent. And I think uh, for those of us who have covered both of them for years, they have a very close relationship. Menendez was a mentor to Booker. They are friends. They appear at just about every event together. Um, they're tight. So you could really feel the anguish that Booker had in writing this statement. And basically, he said, you know, he couched it with the integrity of the office, that he was mm -hmm. having a tough time reconciling these allegations with the Bob Menendez he's known over the years, with the fighter, the guy who's out there for, you know, the middle class. So um, he couched it in for the for the good of the people that Bob Menendez serves, for the good of this office. He should step down. But that was notable because he's highly influential. And once Booker said this, that's when we saw all of these the other floodgate, high ranking. Yeah, oh, the yeah. floodgates opened. We only have about 30 seconds left. Not only the Washington Democrats went against uh, have been calling for his resignation. Almost every high level um, New Jersey uh, Democratic politician has done as well. Um, in his speech on Monday, he almost implied well, he said he wasn't going to quit, and he almost implied, didn't say it explicitly, that he's going to run again next year. With his charges over his head and with this full power of the Democratic Party in Washington and in New Jersey um, against him, do you think that he can actually run and win? That's, that's the million-dollar question. Um, he's got a lot of support from the Latino base in New Jersey. Again, though, these allegations are, are so different this time around, but he is confident that he'll be exonerated and remain the senior U.S. senator. All right, Brianna, we have to end it there. i got many more questions, but the time is up, is up. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll follow the story with you. Good to talk to you. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. The state of teen mental health across the nation is urgent. Last year, the Surgeon General declared a national emergency in teen mental health. More than one in three high school students reports feeling persistent hopelessness, a 40% increase since 2009. And suicide is now the second leading cause of death for adolescents. To raise awareness of these issues, as well as to raise money for research into depression, more than 275 teenagers and their families recently took part in the Teen Race of Hope, a 5K run along the West Side Highway in New York City, the first race of hope to be held in the city, and apparently the first in the nation to focus on youth. Joining me now to talk about the race, as well as what's next in the efforts to understand and treat depression, are Louisa Benton. She is the executive director of the Hope for Depression Research Foundation, and 17-year-old Hayden Lucas. He's a New York City high school junior who came up with the idea to hold the Teen Race of Hope and served as chief student ambassador for the race. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. This is such an important topic. 
And Louisa, let me ask you first, to, to get a, a backdrop for our conversation, to talk about your organization. How did it get started and what's its mission? Yes, thank you. Well, Hope for Depression Research Foundation is a leading nonprofit that is fighting depression by gathering, gathering together the top neuroscientists around the world to work together to find answers to treating and preventing depression. We've been around for 17 years, HDRN. Uh, was founded in 2006. So we've been focused on finding answers for depression for a long time and longer than, than we've actually been talking about it in society. So let me ask you again, 17 years ago, you look at the numbers that I mentioned in the introduction and, and they're stark and they're troubling. Is there some type of an explanation that you folks and the experts are looking to as to why we've seen such a dramatic increase? Oh, my goodness. Well, of course, depression is a very complex topic. And we do know that the number one risk factor for developing depression is stress. Yeah. And Certainly, we have created a world where there are a lot of stressors in our environment. Especially for our children. Especially for our children, exactly. Yeah. So Hayden, what got you invested in this area? Well, I would say that when I first even heard about Hope for Depression and the work that they were doing, it really opened my eyes to the more global issue of mental health as a whole. I think that when, well, before I was introduced to Hope for Depression Research Foundation, I believe that I always saw mental health as almost like a gray area where you it's okay to talk about, but at all costs, you really want to avoid talking about it just to avoid the awkwardness. However, I think that's really what we're addressing here at Hope for Depression Research Foundation. And going back to your question of um the cause and like the increase in depression in the past uh, in these past years i i definitely believe it has something to do with that stigma surrounding it which is one of the main areas that we try to address at hope for depression research foundation yeah let me ask you a follow up on that if i can hayden and 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 i'll give you an illustration i did a story a number of years ago on uh, wounded warriors coming back from combat having suffered serious combat injuries and their, their, how they would rehab all of those. And I interviewed a, a man, young man, who was seriously injured, lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. And he came back and he couldn't wait to get started his rehabilitation. And he talked about, and others talk about how he would just be out there pounding every single day, doing more than anybody wanted to do. But he told me at one point in our conversation, he could not recognize in himself and share his mental and emotional turmoil that came from this. And his answer was, it was not part of the warrior ethos to talk about it. And using that as a comparison point, talk about the notion of people your age, and as you mentioned, that unwillingness to open up about these mental and emotional difficulties. Why do you think that is? Absolutely, yeah, thank you. It's uh, addressing your question, I, I believe it's really institutionalized almost where the stigma surrounding uh, mental health and even discussing depression, it's so, as I said before, awkward to like un 
common listeners that whenever it's discussed, immediately red flags go up. And I feel like addressing your um, the example that you just described of that um, soldier who came back uh, and discussing his um, mental uh, mental health issues was not um, possible for him. I I see it all the time, especially throughout social media. And there's one specific trend actually um, that really addressed this issue and really brought light to it. I think, which is. Um, I'll get on it later. However, like the blessing and curse of what social media does to mental health. Yeah. And this this core uh, this uh, trend was called core core, and it was really seen on the the social media um, app TikTok. And people were really discussing the lack of they weren't so much discussing, however, they were highlighting the lack of male, openness to talk about mental health and mental well-being through popular um uh through popular media and like clipping popular media together and posting that into videos and then posting it onto the greater app and what i'm getting to with this is that when people were clipping this these specific segments of popular media and putting them into videos they were really highlighting how mental health isn't addressed in in popular media and how that that stereotype of strong men never tell their feelings and that even though that isn't encouraged anymore it's still hinted throughout and even though people feel as though this generation is the one to change it which it definitely could be we are still finding that issue of the stigma and trying to beat over that strong man type of mentality how do events like this, Louisa, help? Your mission, we talked about research, but also increasing awareness and, and not just awareness, but a better understanding of yeah. this circumstance. How does something like this, Hayden's idea and the, the race and the other things that you're doing, how do, how do they contribute to increasing that awareness? Oh, th that's a great question. Thank you. You know, a lot of people might be surprised to know that teenagers don't reach out when they're struggling uh, with mental health issues. The statistic is, you know, less than 50% of teenagers reach out. So here's a place where we can make impact immediately on a problem that's complex. And there are long-term solutions and short-term solutions. But the short-term solution is, my goodness, if we can spark life-saving conversations by getting kids together in a way that's festive and fun, but also serious, we can really make a difference. We can plant a seed in a teen's head that, wow, you know, there might be a reason for me to go speak to a trusted adult. There, uh, I, I might not feel comfortable going to my parents, so I will find that teacher at school that I can confide in. So uh, we feel like raising awareness can make an immediate impact in so many lives. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Let's, talk, let's talk about the race. All right. Give, give me a sense of uh, how did it go? Um, you know, the, the planning that went into it and, and what did you feel came out of it? Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the race was fantastic. It was an amazing turnout. We had over 200 runners and we were able to raise, I, I just laugh at it, over $31,000. It's it's good amazing just to say out loud sometimes. But Good for, good for you. Well done. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
really there was so much planning going into this race as louisa said uh almost a year of planning and this this um required uh recruiting fellow teens who i knew would be really interested and um reaching out to schools to promote the race reaching out to possible sponsors all of this was of course available uh, made so easy with the guidance of what louisa um uh catherine megan um just other people who work at hope for depression research Found- foundation but um addressing that third part of your question like what was the result i believe it was just it was a really great afternoon uh sorry it was a really great morning but i feel like the people who attended really were able to understand what it means to be open about mental health and really what's going on with um teenage mental health specifically um just referring back to the first time I ran the race and what I took away from it and connecting it to the people who ran this time. When I first went, I really, my eyes were opened by the statistics and I was able to run that day and really think about, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. In that sense, that has so many meanings behind it in mental health as a whole. However, I'm not alone as in this is an awkward topic. However, everyone thinks of it as an awkward topic. And when I was there that day saying I'm not alone, if we all think about it as that awkward topic, it's that stigma. And if we all address the stigma and we say, okay, it might be a little awkward, but the 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 ratio of response of like being able to make that first step of saying hey, this is what I'm going through. That's so important. That That is what saves a life. And that's what right. that run really taught me that day. Right. And it taught right. me how just mental health is okay to talk about. Yeah. And, and I think I really hope that's what people yeah. learn the day, um, the, the team race of hope. And yeah. It, it certainly sounds like it. We could talk forever about this, but such good work um, by by Louisa, your organization, Hayden, you and the people that work with it, and and just creating the notion that it, it it's okay not to be okay. You're not alone, and especially it's okay to talk with people about it. And and again, you're doing wonderful work, both of you and all the folks that have been working with you. So uh, congratulations on it. Um, uh, well done. Thanks so much for talking with us, and we'll check back in with you down the road and see how things are going. You all be well now. Thank you so much for your Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.